0: Today's episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HJC Helmets. James, did you know that HJC has 45 years' worth of experience in the helmet game and is also currently the biggest motorcycle helmet brand in
1: the world? Joseph Robinson, I knew this. I also know that HJC has used its unrivaled expertise, that's expertise without rival, to create these helmets for MotoGP. It's done so with wind tunnel testing and real world testing and it's applied this to bicycles and now makes the fastest helmets in the world too. And aren't we just the experts in HJC helmets, James?
0: Can you also name the two World Tour teams currently using those HJC helmets and the names of its road models too? Uh,
1: Yes, I can again. It is uh, EG2R Citron and Isla Startup Nation. They are the teams. The helmets are the Ibex 2.0, the Furion 2.0 and the Beastie Boys helmet of choice, the AdWat. And how about the starting price for helmets in
0: the UK? Uh, 75 of your English pounds, please. Congratulations, James. Top marks. You have won yourself a HJC helmet of choice and the complete back catalogue of the Beastie Boys. Now, HJC helmets are available in-store at all HJC stockists and online too. For your closest HJC helmet stockist, search on the Stockist Locator available on the Saddleback website, the home for HJC in the UK. Joe, I'd like to add one more thing.
1: It's H, not H. Hello, welcome
0: back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, uh, brought to you today by HJC Helmets. I'm your host, Joe Robinson. With me, down the other end of the line, is Mr. James Spender.
1: Hello, Joseph. Do HJC Helmets actually fit your head? Uh, No, we'll
0: gloss over that, because on today's show, a man who has taken on Prime Ministers and Hollywood actors, but believes his toughest task would be racing Hugh Edwards up Alpduez. It's Channel 4 news presenter and journalist. Krishnan Guru Murphy. Uh, but before we get into that interview, uh, the good and the bad in cycling, James. Okay, James, good to see you again. Thanks for bringing up the fact that HJC helmets probably don't fit my head. Nothing to the, the helmets.
1: Nothing to the helmets. It's just Joe's got an alarmingly large head.
0: Top 2% of head sizes in the world, dear listener. Five and a half thousand skittles can fit in this noggin. But it's probably why I'm so good at quizzing.
1: Uh, <laughs> that is true you've won
0: as many a pub quiz won as many a pub quiz and i've appeared in inter- i've internationally quizzed i was on a bbc quiz show when i was 18 didn't win though. that's an anecdote didn't for win, another though, did time. You? Didn't win. I, I i don't bring it up james uh i want you i want you to tell me something you're enjoying in the world of cycling not
1: something not something i dislike about your history on quizzes uh <laughs> i just i mean it's such an obvious one isn't it the sun the big ball of gas in the sky oh it's lovely that's come out so that's meant that I've been able to do some um, nice little A to B rides. One of them last weekend was going to Brighton uh, with a lovely friend of mine. So from here, probably, I don't know, best part of over, just over 100k. And on the way, we actually stopped for a spontaneous shandy. And that's not, oh. that's not an inuit. That's not a euphemism, mate. It's stopping. You know, you cycle past. Do you remember those days we used to cycle past a nice country pub bathed in sunlight? there's lovely picnic benches and we just stopped and got a table Pop our head in should we pop our head head in in? should we just sit down not having booked and then order and it was great and also Britain I mean we do do a lot of things really badly we also do some things quite well and one of them is a good country pub this pub yeah dated back to that you know I'm a bit of a history into my history now it would seem banging on about churches last week and this week this pub 1470 dated back to 1470 and Joe, you know what, so taken by its uh, history, I can't even remember the name, but it was a great shandy, Sam Mig with a lemonade top.
0: When do you reckon was the first year that they served up a San Miguel shandy? Uh,
1: I think San Miguel probably came around around the 20th 21st September. century, I reckon. Now the Conquistadors brought San Miguel to, <laughs> to Kent, didn't they? <laughs> the so I went via Kent, by the way. I went via Kent, went yeah. via your neck of the woods. We were just talking about it before we came on air, so one of the things I don't like is Bromley. Nothing to do with Bromleyans. Or well, actually, no. It's everything to do with Bromlians. David Bowie grew up in Bromley. Did he? Oh, yeah. Zined. Well, it's just to do with uh, some Bromlians and their cars. Their stupid, massive cars. Their failure to get in the correct lanes and just driving, driving like, driving like, they are simultaneously on fire and trying to have a baby. For anyone
0: who doesn't know. And and at this one, no one will care outside of South East London, but Bromley is very similar to like Chelmsford and there's a few other towns where it's just they've pedestrianised the high street, which is really good, but they've encompassed it in like a three lane one way system
1: around the outside, which is like hell for a yeah. cyclist. So yeah, so they, it's not very nice. Apparently it's because they built the North Circular in London and that's an actual road. They got down south and they were just like, Do you know what? everyone's well moody about us knocking down their houses to build a road. Let's just connect up an existing road and call it one way. So that's why it's kind of hellish down there. So there's got to be a better way, a better way, need to enunciate, a better way to get out of London down to Brighton. But anyway, it was a fantastic day. It was so lovely just to poot around in the sun. And then when you get to Brighton, of course, there's a sea and you can jump in it. And some rock. And some rock. A lot of Brighton rock. What you're not liking at the moment, then, James? Well, a couple of things, really. Uh, just been round a mate's house to sort out a few little odds and odds and sods. Plasterboard, Raw plugs, and plasterboard. There's no such thing as a good plasterboard wall plug. They all just tear tear the thing apart. No, no,
0: no. you know, what? You, you need you need metal pigtails. James. I've got metal
1: pigtails, mate, and they always just. I know exactly what you're talking about, and they don't, they just don't hold after a while. They just. Plaster-
0: I've got I've got the same here. So me... I'm in a new build, so our walls are made out of paper, yeah. obviously. Yeah, And yeah, if you don't use the metal pig towels, I had a towel rail just fall out the wall once. Yeah. Because it just it made the hole a bit bigger and then it just shifted out. Exactly. This. We use, I'll tell you what we do, we use no-nails. Do you? We use a bit of soodal no-nails to get up like mirrors and stuff. That mirror behind me there, no-nails.
1: Wow. Okay, beautiful. Maybe, maybe I'll start doing that then. No-nails, no-nails A 52-inch plasma TV on the wall. That should be fine. <laughs> yeah, just that you
0: can't take it with you when you move.
1: Yeah, but no, that's not cycling. Thing that thing that bugs me uh, in cycling is just the amount of times that you do just drop a chain, particularly where front mech is concerned. It's really it's fantastically annoying, and even more fantastically annoying is just how dirty you can get putting the little the little. Why are you, why are you shifting a chain so much, mate? Why are you shifting that? Because I was riding to from London to Brighton. It's very hilly. Yeah,
0: but just shift. Before you get it, like it's under pressure. If you just shift it,
1: yes, earlier know, you Joe. won't shift it. I know, it to Joe. <laughs> I know, Joe. But even so, the artifice of the front derailleur is—it's a terrible artifice indeed. But then, conversely, because this is happening on my companion's bike as well, conversely, um, I do just love how cyclists just get stuck in. So she drops a chain on a climb. Look back, just like elbows deep in grease. Boom. Notice, like, oh, I might get my hands dirty. Um, just like, no, that's, you know, you fix it, don't you? You fix it. number of times you ride past some cyclists at the side of the road and you're like, you're right. And they're chained. And they're, they're always just like, yeah, fine. Self-sufficient mate. I could probably, I could probably live here. I could probably build a house out of these spokes and these, these ferns and just live here. Cause I'm, so, I'm a cyclist. I'm self-sufficient. Yeah. So I like that. Fair play. Yeah. How about you?
0: Ooh, what am I liking? Uh, so I've got some new wheels in for test, James. A uh, set of Hunt wheels, fifty carbon wide rim brake. So it's like their entry. Rim brake.
1: Right? They still make those.
0: Oh yeah, mate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Campagnolo, yeah. Campagnolo, like free hub as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, till they get delivered on the art? I because you know it's two thousand and five in my house. Um, yeah. We, uh, I got them in for, for for test because you know what. Everyone's testing disc brake wheels online at the moment yeah, because that's the only
1: thing that people need.
0: Absolutely not. Go out on the weekend. The majority of people are still running rim brakes, so okay, they want advice enough. on that. That's true. And I'm that's giving true. them advice. And these are their like entry level wheels at 869 pounds, full carbon. So we've oh. got a 19 mil internal rim depth, so they're built for tubeless. I haven't set them up tubeless yet.
1: Because you don't like tubeless, so you
0: never will. Yeah, yeah. you know, and it's really hard finding 23 mil wide tubeless tires. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, but they they they're fast, so they're like fifty mil deep. Um, they're not the lightest; they're like fifteen hundred grams. So I'd they, say
1: that's that's quite acceptable. It's it's acceptable,
0: mil. acceptable for like they're more of an aero wheel set. They yeah. they're really good. There's a couple of climbs near me that are like four five percent, and they're really impressive on there. I, I'll be excited. I am going to set them up tubeless though. I probably won't ride them as tubeless, but I will set them up just to see how easy they
1: are to set up tubeless. That's just such a strange thing to say. I'm going to set them up as tubeless, but I probably won't ride them.
0: <laughs> the reason I'm doing that is because I've got I've got a couple of set of tubeless tires on me. Yeah, uh, knocking about, but they're 28 mil, and the frame I have only takes 25 mil tires. Like just, it's okay. an old frame. Okay. Um, so I might do it, and then I have got my dad's got an old rim brake Trek Monda. Yeah. that I might put them in and ride them
1: for a bit on that, so I can see what they're like with like a bit of lower pressure, obviously. Yeah. Um, here's an just, idea but, for you. Go on. Use your journalistic sway to uh, get a pair of twenty-five mil tires to test. I could do that, couldn't I? Yeah, Good I think you, I think I feel like you probably should. I think you owe it to anyone reading your reviews who have actually ridden them. No, in, in I will, a, no, in I will your ride bike. them.
0: I will ride them, but I'll probably. I've, I've ridden my dad's trek quite a bit. Lovely little bike. Really Lovely like Nice, it. no, really nice. Lovely wonder. Uh, mm, real nice. Just don't like the seat. The seat post. The, the fact that it's like a it's on
1: the top, isn't it? Rather oh, than an the int- one you pull up. So it's not that yeah. old then, it's got an integrated seat post, an ISP. Oh no,
0: it's like, like twenty eighteen Clipamonder. Yeah, Sick, one good.
1: of the lightest bikes um, in the market at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's decent. Yeah, better bike than you <laughs> Anyway, anyway, good set of wheels. Oh the only thing I would vote is that the free hub is so loud.
1: They say that about hunts and it's true. I've had a couple of pairs.
0: And I, I've had I've had free blokes think they're really funny and make comments about it when I've been out riding recently. And like none of their none of their jokes have been funny, but they've all been accurate.
1: Have they all involved, like, references to bees?
0: No, one bloke came past and was like, Blimey, mate, you can barely hear that free hub. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was my response. But, no, it is for, they are very loud. Um, they do scare off local wildlife. Not one for the twitchers. But, no, it's a good set of wheels. Um, I'll, I'll be testing them more in depth before I do my reviews. Don't worry, reader or listener.
1: I will say this for Hunt, though. Uh, number one the like their internals and their hubs are really very good they're solid if loud number two if you do have a mind to you can pull these things apart relatively easily and pack them with a lot of grease which mate someone will say will increase the drag i will say well and what barely james i struggle i struggle putting a set of tires on mate i don't think i'm gonna be deconstructing a hub all right okay fair enough
0: um another but i want to tell you about another thing i'm enjoying at the moment. Uh, the second series of the Netflix documentary and, uh, on Movistar,
1: Team Movistar. What's it called? The Least Expected Day. The Least Expected Day. Wasn't the first yeah. one called The Least Expected Day? It I, was. I think they should be, I think it should be more more sort of ready after the first one to not have unexpected days. So series one was about like that psychodrama
0: between their tridente of leaders, Mikel landon Nairo Quintana uh, and Alejandro Valverde. And then there was all the whole controversy about Richard Carapaz winning the Giro, then leaving. Really good documentary, I loved it. Uh, this series is about, obviously, the 2020 season, COVID, uh, the fact that they had Lander and Quintana leave and they brought in a new leader in Enrique Mas. But it's very good, I suggest you watch it. There's six episodes, they're very bingeable. Um, there's some standout characters to me, uh, two of which, the, there's a t- director sportif called Pablo Lastras, who is, I I think, has murdered people. The way he goes about his business is excellent. Uh, Mark Soler, who's a rider for Movistar, who's just a like 24-7 bad boy, just does what he wants. And the
1: inventor of the Solero.
0: Yeah, just moans at people. Uh, and then there's a man called uh, Jose Vincent Garcia, also known as Chente, who's another DS, who's just a lovely man who comes across as a really nice director sportif, very funny, and just keeps people's moods up. And Fantastic. it was nice to see. But it's a really good documentary. I definitely suggest watching it if you're into cycling. Uh, it's, it's something you can, you know, watch quite easily. You don't have to concentrate too much. We do because it's subtitled, but oh dear. it's not too... I don't
1: want to read TV.
0: Oh, all right. God. fair enough. That's a, that's, that's rubbish because you've suggested documentaries to me that were in foreign languages with subtitles before. Yeah, no, I love reading TV. The
1: thing <laughs> is, it, it keeps me off my phone, doesn't it? Exactly. If you've, got to, if you've got to look at the actual thing. Exactly. Cool. Well, that's lovely. So what I mean... Sounds like your life's a better roses. Are there any thorns? Uh yeah, there is. Leg shaving. Ooh. So we're at that time of year now, James, where for the for cyclist
0: for cyclists we are going out doing like sort of shoots. We're doing you know, yesterday I was out um shooting some video for, for the cyclist YouTube page. Got a bit sunburnt doing it. Ooh, I've also got a bit tan, so it's fine. Uh and for us, you know, one of the things we do because I don't know, it's kind of unwritten rule. We always shave our legs for whenever we're doing content.
1: Yeah. I'd, 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 yes I'd agree with that I don't know what
0: you want me to say I don't know what you want to say Just feel. I mean it feels nice but what I find and I and I want your advice on this because I know that you're very good at it is I, I'll shave my legs I'll take a lot of time over it listen to a bit like listen to the radio listen to a bit of music do it in the bath um, I'll be really happy then like two hours later I'll be sitting on the sofa a pair of shorts and I'll just see like clumps of hair that I've missed how do I how do I combat that how do I make sure that
1: well, you've got two options. Number one, you could uh, go back in time, try and do some gene splicing with your parents and get darker hair because the problem for us, my friend, is we're blondies and that fine, fine blondie down is easily missed to the naked eye, especially when you're reclining in a bath. So that's why it happens. There is no way around it. The only way around it is that post-bath, you exit said bathroom with a razor in, in hand and, so, and you just have it next to you when you're watching the telly and you have a little glass of water. And if, when, as and when you spy the offending hairs, you dip your razor in and you just kind of part dry. Because most razors, I mean, I'm assuming you're not just using uh, a white handle Bic with an orange cap. You've actually got something with multiple blades and a little aloe vera style strip on it, which is a good, good little lubricator. Yeah, Gillette, Gillette, exactly. Fusion. So, triple blade. Triple blade. Exactly. So, you you dip that in some water and that's going to lubricate it enough so it's not going to catch your skin. And then just ad hoc shave. Ad yeah. hoc shaving, mate. That's my solution. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. That's Thank all right. You. But Thank I mean, you that. And do you moisturize after you... Yes. Every... You have to moisturize because otherwise it, it ends up looking like a crocodile. Oh, not for me. Really? All yeah. right. All right. Fair enough. Mr. Mr. <laughs> Supple Skin. I guess I'm just... A little, probably just riding in harsher conditions than you actually. Because I'm a bit more of a hardcore cyclist. But no, what I, I mean... I'm, I say... I mean, I, I jest. And also, um, I'm struggling with wanting to shave my legs. I've had hair on my legs for the longest time in the last nine years. Do it, though, because once they're off, it just they look so much better. Nah,
0: well, I mean... They do, because we've got a good look... Cyclists have good-looking legs, and, you know, my, my poor rubber half, she hates it when I shave my legs. Because you've got better yeah. legs than her. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And there's, not, there's nothing like getting in. You know when you do clean sheets Sunday...
0: So Aww.
1: you do your clean sheets for the evening just to, you know... They were clean sheets yesterday. Oh, oh it's yeah. lovely, isn't it? A real treat for the week. Clean sheet Sunday and you do leg shave as well. And you get in to your clean sheet bed with your shaven legs. Oh, It's just like someone's... It feels like someone's pouring milk all over your legs all night. And uh, talking
0: of dairy products over your legs, uh, should we move on to the interview with Krishna and Guru Murphy? Exactly, where he doesn't discuss anything to do with dairy products. Ah, <laughs> oh, here we go. Roll it in. Our first question for you, Krishna, and we spent a long time writing this. What was more difficult, riding from London to Paris in 24 hours or interviewing Quentin Tarantino?
2: Oh, that's an easy one. I mean, the bike ride is by far the hardest physical and mental thing I've ever done because I'm not a cyclist. You know, I am a TV interviewer, and I, I kind of knew what I was doing with Quentin Tarantino. I wasn't in control of it, and I wasn't in control of his temper But I wasn't hugely surprised either because I knew he had lost it a little bit with interviewers in the past or got cross. So I wasn't entirely surprised when he did get cross, although I was surprised at how how much it went on. Um, And that's my job. You know, that's kind of what I do. Whereas doing the bike ride is just so counter to anything in my normal life. I mean, I'm not a fit person. I'm not somebody who would normally exercise I hadn't been on a bike for about 20 years before I decided to do it um, you know I literally went into my local bike shop which is a brilliant bike shop called Pearson's they're believed to be the oldest bike shop in Britain and uh, went in and said look I'm, I'm cycling to Paris and I so I need a bike and they was like well right well what do you ride and all the rest of when I was like literally I haven't been on a bike since I was a teenager really so no it was very hard
0: so it's worth adding some context to why you did that ride. So was it was it 2015, am I right in saying it was the first year you did it? Or it was 2013. 2013. So, yeah, add some context to, to why you rode to Paris, because you didn't do it just because you felt the need to ride to the Champs-Élysées alone.
2: No, I had a colleague and a very good friend called Emily Rubin who worked with me on Channel 4 News. She was a reporter and presenter. And we had children at the same time, and her son is the same age as my son. Um, and... Her son was diagnosed um, after about five years, I think, with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is this terrible genetic disease um, which involves muscle wasting, and, and there's no treatment for it. It's, it's one of those quite common but very rare diseases. So thousands of people, the vast majority boys, Um, because of the genetics uh, have it but that's not really enough you know or wasn't really enough to get drug companies interested in putting a huge amount of resources into finding a cure because the numbers weren't big enough to make it very profitable Um, and so when when Emily's son was diagnosed she looked around to see what was being done about this disease and realized not very much and so she decided to set up a charity that would be focused purely on treatment and cure rather than a lot of medical charities are are sort of focused on uh, supporting families and advice and lobbying and campaigning and all of that kind of thing. Duchenne UK was to be focused essentially on trying to Trying to fix this disease, and so she asked me to get involved and be a patron, and you know, and of course I said yes, and and thought, well, what can I do to raise some money? And I cast around, and a colleague of mine who's a big cyclist had just ridden London to Paris, and he said, well, you could ride London to Paris, and I thought that was a ridiculous proposition because I just didn't think it would be possible. And he said, no, it's it's definitely possible, and you you can definitely do it just with a bit of training. You will have to work and so I said okay fine and I decided initially just to do it I was going to do it basically with him and a couple of friends um, to just accompany me but it gradually grew and grew with more and more people saying well I'd like to do that with you so in the first year we ended up with about 32 people who were a mixture of friends and colleagues and people I interviewed I went to interview the head of Google in Europe uh, and was he's a big cyclist. And we just happened to be talking about cycling. I said, well, I'm training for this ride. And and we talked about it. And then the next day, he rang me and said, well, could I join you on that? I'd like to do that as well. And we'll raise money too. So it it kind of grew into, into that. And in that first year, we raised a quarter of a million pounds um, between 32 of us. And then it just took on a life of its own. And within a year, it was about 120, 140 people. And that's what it is pretty much every year now. And we try and raise a million pounds a year.
0: Amazing. And am I right in saying that you attempt to do London's Paris? Is it in 24 hours? Yeah, I mean... It... Which is a bit more of a, a, a challenge than London to Paris would be in other circumstances because it is 275 miles. So it is, as you said, a challenge that pushes yourself as opposed to sort of a... I wouldn't want to say easier challenge, but it is a, a quite a hard task.
2: Well, our route is the most direct route, so it's not quite 275 miles, which I think it would be if you were going um, Dover-Calais. So we go London to New Haven, we get the ferry from the New Haven to Dieppe, and then straight down from Dieppe to Paris. And that's about 300 kilometres. So it's about 100 kilometres on the British side and about 200 kilometres on the, on the French side. But it is, it's an endurance challenge, especially for you know, amateur cyclists, people who aren't obsessed by cycling. And I think even even accomplished cyclists have moments on that ride where it's difficult um, because, you know, you you haven't slept very much and you've had this terrible ferry ride um, and, you know, you start very early in the morning and it's exhilarating, but it is it is tough. And, you know, certainly for me, it was a real challenge and we were really scared we weren't going to be able to do it. And I had trained... London to New Haven I'd done that leg a few times before we did it the first time Um, and you know I found it really really hard and I would have to recover for a couple of days afterwards um, initially and so the idea of doing the whole thing was was scary at first but then you you know you realize what is possible especially what's possible when you are spurred on by other people and carried along on that wave of excitement about what you're doing.
1: So will will this be happening this year or not because of COVID?
2: Last year was the year we had to stop going to Paris because of COVID and we're still unable to go to Paris because of quarantine and travel restrictions. So last year, we just decided to ask people to do whatever they could in their local area. Um, And I actually went with a couple of friends from London to Oxford to Cambridge and then back to London. This year, we've got a much more organised plan, which is... We've taken over the racetrack at Goodwood. It's going to be going round and round the racetrack. Um, They've called it, you know, uh, the Duchenne Dash Round the World, with the notion that between us, we are going to cover the distance of going round the world, which is about 40,000 kilometres. And so depending on how many people join us, we will have to do, you know, anything between... 150 kilometres and 400, <laughs> um, and I think we've got a total capacity of about 300 riders. And at the moment, we've got about 150 riders signed up because that's the sort of the normal batch size of the Duchenne Dash. Um, but I mean, you know, we're up for expanding it. So if people who are listening fancy doing this, it's it's going to be really good fun. It's really well organised. That that was the kind of our, our sort of our USP right from the beginning when we decided to go London to Paris even though we were a small group we decided we had to do this in a sort of very boutique hyper-supported way so we had a big support entourage even in that first year Um, and we planned our food and drink stops incredibly well and we had mechanics and outriders and we, we, we now are escorted all the way through France with motorbikes who basically do a rolling roadblock and stop all the traffic as we ride through. So you don't ever actually have to stop at a traffic light or a junction in France. And so we've continued that principle uh, on on the on the Goodwood ride. And I think it will be a lot of fun.
1: Is there a, a time limit for you guys on this occasion as there is for going all there was for London Paris?
2: Well, it's it's going to be less just because of the practicalities of taking over a place like Goodwood. So I think, in fact, the riding time is more like 12 hours. Um, And that will mean it's a bit more intense. There'll be less time to stop. Um, Because on London to Paris, even though it's a long way, you know, we do have quite a lot of feed stops. We have a couple of stops in particular where you get a good hour, basically. And we have the ferry ride over from New Haven to Dieppe, which is a few hours in which to try and have a, a bit of a rest. Whereas this will be pretty much... Non-stop with you know whatever brakes people need
1: and will uh will your colleague john Snow be join you because he's a cyclist as well isn't he i've seen him around london on a very very tall condor because he's a he's a tall gentleman
2: john john's a proper cyclist yeah i mean like he he genuinely um uses his bike every day to commute around um he's not going to be on this one i don't think he's joined us in the past for usually the final leg um so so he will either see us off from London or sometimes he has got the train out to France and joined us on that sort of final leg between, uh, you know, as we, as we roll into Paris. It's always good fun to get a little bit of a, a lift uh, from that. I am sort of very much a fair weather cyclist and I get involved in cycling when I'm training for the dash and I, I do then genuinely enjoy it. Um, and do it and then and commute a lot. I, I live about nine miles from the office and so cycling to and from work is just a good way for me to sort of try and keep fit or get fit when I'm training for the dash. But I'm, I'm useless in that pretty much as soon as I've done the dash, I then stop and I lose all my fitness within about six to eight weeks um, and put on loads of weight. <laughs> and, and then once that's happened, I then become paralysed by... The idea of getting back on the bike, and it takes me absolutely ages. Um, it makes no sense at all. It's really, really stupid. And every year I say to myself, just just keep riding. Just keep doing it, and it'll be fine. And then you won't go through this hell every year of, of having to get fit again. But I, I never learn.
1: Well, I think strangely that makes you more of a cyclist than you realise, because that is the classic boom and bust of your pro cyclist, is they actually smash it for, you know, nine months of the year uh, and then typically foot off the gas at the end of the season and then pile on the pounds, put their feet up, don't ride again until uh, until they get whipped into shape in, on a team camp in Spain. So I think I think uh, the psychology behind your approach, Christian, is, is bob on.
2: Oh, really? That's, well, that's very surprising, actually. All the cyclists I know are just incredibly lithe and do it all the time and think nothing of, you know, five hours at six in the morning on a Sunday before their actual day begins.
0: In 2013, when you decided to do the first uh, Duchenne, um ride to Paris, talk us through the nerves of knowing, because you just said there you get this sort of anxiety when you know that you've got to start training again. But what was it like the first time when you know that in front of you is this quite mammoth task and you haven't, as you said, ridden a bike really since you were a teenager?
2: I was genuinely scared that I wouldn't be able to do it and that I wouldn't be able to keep up. And I, I did fall back. We, we, we were really chaotic in the first year because we didn't all stick together. We all started just drifting apart. And, you know, you'd ride with one person for a bit and then another person for a bit, and a couple of us got lost. And you know, um, And then we would meet up at stops along the way. But I was genuinely scared that I wouldn't be able to do it. and And to be honest, I still am. Um, I haven't done it every year but I try and do it whenever I can and I still find it scary that I'm not really able to do this and not going to be able to keep up with people I find that bit really psychologically difficult the idea of staying in a group and, and keeping to other people's speed I really lack confidence when it comes to my ability to do anything like that and so I did find it very hard and still do even though I know I've done it and therefore I can do it again I've also got a heart condition that's been diagnosed now since the first time I did it. And the cardiologist will say, you know, you've got to be really careful. You can't really push yourself to extremes. You know, you mustn't race or anything like that. Uh, So I, I can't do sort of high intensity. So going up hills and things like that becomes a real challenge because attacking hills, which obviously you've got to try and do to some extent becomes a bit scary for me and i kind of think right well you you really no point killing yourself on a sponsored ride so um you know it becomes quite slow and grindy and difficult for me but you go through waves you know and that's that's the sort of the exhilaration of doing a ride like that where you're finding it really really hard and then you look up and you're in this amazing sort of field of poppies in northern france and it's just beautiful and you look ahead and you've got this big long line of cyclists on a country road and it and that's all you really see and it's very uplifting and you kind of think wow all these people who are just doing this to raise money for this thing and you know you get really carried along by that I think and you're able to do things that I certainly wouldn't normally be able to do fantastic so
1: so given that that sounds like those are kind of the moments of elation what's what have been or what was your darkest hour on a bike
2: darkest hour on a bike um I've probably had a few. Um, my darkest hour on a bike is probably along a stretch of the Duchenne Dash on the first or second time I did it, where I started to think I wasn't going to be able to carry on. Um, and there's a section in northern France where it's just quite grindy and relentless, and it's quite a long stretch. And you've been up since four or five in the morning, and it's been cold, and, and then it sort of it, it warms up, but you're tired and you haven't eaten properly because... You know, you really struggle to eat breakfast at five in the morning when you've got to get on the bike and you haven't slept and you're tired and you're a bit disorientated. I went through a very hard patch um, on that on that ride for... Quite a few miles where I just thought, you know, I'm just going to fall back and, you know, maybe I'll get there tomorrow or something, Um, and just do this at my own pace and didn't really think I'd be able to carry on. But, you know, you you get through it and people accompany you. And, you know, I had some brilliant friends who were with me who just kind of slowed down and waited for me and carried on, gave me occasional push up a hill um, and, and got me through it. I mean, normally the dark times on the bike are just cars, aren't they? And the way they treat you. I spend my time when I'm commuting, as I'm sure most cyclists do, just sort of shouting at people and, 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 and shouting at cars, you know, because you see the car at the junction ahead and you're just going, don't you fucking dare, you know. And, 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 and they do always, and it's just kind of annoying. And, you know, I don't understand. I mean, I know Jeremy Vine, a friend of mine, and former colleague, you know, films all of these things all the time and posts them on Twitter, um, uh, you know, every sort of furious moment. <laughs> And I, I don't really know how he has the energy because it's all the time, as far as I can tell when I'm on a bike, you know, it's every day. <laughs> and I think I've been on a bit of a journey myself, you know, as, as a road user, you know, as somebody who just never, ever cycled and did used to find cyclists irritating from time to time if they'd get in your way and all the rest of it. Uh, and I think I was probably a bit of an inconsiderate driver at times. And then as soon as you get on a bike, you suddenly realise, you know, how stupid so many drivers are. And you, you know, you very quickly go. Well, I don't want to be like that anymore. Or if you're, if you go out with your kids on a bike, which, um, you know, which I've obviously done since doing the dash. Um, you know, you suddenly become aware of how dangerous the roads are. So, I think I've, you know, fundamentally changed my own approach to the roads as well. So I do understand to some degree, which, which I don't think cyclists are immune from either. I mean, to be honest, I, I remember the first time I went down the. You know the bike lane on the embankment, and I absolutely hated it because of the other cyclists. You know, I thought I thought the, you know there were so many really selfish, aggressive cyclists on that road.
0: It's genuinely, I, I find often I've, I ride that quite a bit. Is it's more dangerous than the actual road on the embankment? Is the, yeah. the segregated cycle lane because, as you said, there's. You can have everything from someone on a Boris bike doing 10k an hour too. And I've seen people on full-on time trial bikes doing sort of 45k an hour. And it's like this madness of moving parts that it just feels like it's a crash waiting to happen.
2: Yeah. And you often feel really under pressure, I think, when you've got a fast cyclist coming up behind you in a way that I no longer feel pressure from traffic. I mean, I I cycle the way I drive and i often on the same routes. So I take the same sort of shortcuts and, you know, cycle quite aggressively, I suppose, to sort of hold the road and hold my position to get to work as quickly as possible. But uh, I don't, you know, I certainly don't harass other people on the road, but you kind of, you, you really feel that pressure from other cyclists when, when, you know, they are much faster than you and they're coming up behind you and you're in their way. Um, and particularly on those segregated cycle lanes i find it really awful so i don't i don't use them at all now do
1: you um do you get recognised on your commute and do you, is that a kind of a burden of responsibility on your shoulders of you know if i were to be involved in any kind of altercation and people do have mobile phones suddenly i'm all over twitter so i've got a kind of back off a little bit and bite my tongue or have there been those times where you haven't and someone's gone oi you're that bloke off the telly and you're like oh dear (laughs) a
0: a good case in point is um, last year um, around Regents Park a cyclist caught I think it was Guy Ritchie on his phone trying to go the wrong way down the road at Regents Park and that was just he had a camera and because it's Guy Ritchie otherwise it wouldn't have been a big thing but then hits the news lines
2: yeah I mean I I do occasionally get recognised. I mean, I hate being recognised mainly because if I'm wearing, you know, lycra, it's not a pretty size. Um, But if I take routes along big, busy roads like Oxford Street or something like that, which I sometimes do if I'm going to work, then people will recognise you at the lights. And it changes your behaviour a bit in that, you know, you're never going to jump a red light. You're not going to break the rules because somebody's going to see you and um and it would be not a good look um I mean I, I'm not a sort of a, a red light jumper anyway I kind of I've cycled with people who are and I kind of think you just mad. It. it's so dangerous
1: yeah, I think we've mentioned it on the show before one of my all-time favorite cycling pictures is of uh Boris kind of Boris coming towards the camera and then a guy cycling towards him, away from camera, flipping him the bird simultaneously, yeah. and it's just such a perfect. At that time, it sort of summed up Britain. <laughs> <laughs> but no, will yeah, um,
2: not really. If you think about what actually happened. Well, um, but yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but to, to try on the more positive note, um, when you're not having to uh, fight the the commute on the daily grind, where where have you been riding? And you know, do you, do you put yourself into cycling holidays? And will you be doing one anytime soon?
2: The only cycling holiday I've done is Ile de in France, which was a sort of a family cycling experience where it wasn't really a family holiday. It wasn't really a cycling holiday. It was a holiday on a place where everybody cycles everywhere. And so we took the bikes on the car and drove down and. We're on the bikes every day and just used it to get around because that's how people get around on Ile de I don't know if if, you, if you've been there, but I mean it's a lovely little place. It's very, it's a bit sort of Notting Hill on sea now, but um, <laughs> but it's you know it's this gorgeous island full of nice little towns and you can drive around it, but it's a bit mad to try and everybody's on bikes on bike tracks. I don't think I'm serious enough to go on a proper cycling holiday, a proper cycling enduring holiday, and, you know endurance holiday. And my wife would never do it with me; she's a runner. Um, rather than a cyclist and um so I think trying to persuade her to do that would be tricky
0: but talking about serious um let's talk about so you own a you still own a Pearson right I saw a picture of um I I saw a picture I believe it was dated 2015 with you on a on a a Pearson that had disc brakes and I remarked to James how you were such an early adopter of disc brake technology which is even now even I haven't fully embraced it as James would tell you because I'm Still in the
1: 1990s. <laughs> <laughs> the youngest Luddite we know, Joseph Robinson.
2: Yeah, I mean, that that bike actually in 2015 was one I borrowed from Pearson's for the election campaign. I did a bike ride across the north of England um, during the election where we cycled from Whitby Bay to Salford, stopping along the way and talking to people and making little films. And we'd do an outside broadcast every night from a different location across the north of England. Um, and... And um, Pearson's lent me that bike for that, which was great fun. And that was, it was, you know, their newest technology. It was a titanium bike with disc brakes. And it was really different, very different to my bike. I've got a carbon Pearson bike um, with traditional old calipers. And it's still the same bike that I did the first dash on in, in 2013. I try not to get sucked in too much to all the technology. I mean, I I really enjoyed, you know, using di2 gears and hydraulic disc brakes and all that kind of thing and if i if i do get a bike then i'm sure it will have all the toys but um i'm not sure it really makes that much difference if i'm being honest
0: I, I agree, Christian, and I work
1: for a site, <laughs> which I shouldn't
0: admit.
1: Considering. <laughs> Shh, don't say that, joke. We need to drive We need to drive consumerism in our industry. It keep some employed.
2: I did also buy a, an e-road bike. I mean, that was the really big and st- rather stupid investment I made.
0: Oh, no. E-bikes e- e- are 100% the future, and we should all be investing in them. They are the most fun you can have.
2: Well, I'm not sure, actually, because I've got it, and I've actually sold it.
1: Really. What did you
2: get? I got a Trek e road bike, and it was horrifically expensive, (laughs) and uh, you know, very advanced and really exciting when I got it. And it's quite good fun to ride because it's quite, you know, it gets gets you going quite fast, quite quickly. But I stopped using it because I realised that it was great for me when I was unfit. But as soon as I became a little bit fit, I found it really frustrating around London because just didn't really, I didn't need it. It was stopping me maintaining my fitness because you can be so lazy with an e-bike. I didn't really need it, you know. And and, and actually, quite often, I wanted to go faster than you really can on an e-bike because they're they're, they're so heavy that once you're pedaling faster than 25 kilometers an hour, which is when the motor cuts out, you're having to work really, really hard to go anywhere above 25 k that it feels really weird and it doesn't have the handling of a normal bike. So I found myself actually wanting to get back onto my unassisted bike um, quite quickly. And so I decided to sell it.
1: But speaking, speaking of plush bikes then, and you mentioned your colleagues um, at ITN, uh, lots of them do ride, who's got the best bike and who's got the bike where it's like, for goodness sake, please replace that as a death trap.
2: Well, one of my friends who does the dash a lot has been incredibly unlucky in that he's had two crashes I think um, and broken bikes but so he keeps getting new bikes so he's always got the newest poshest bike uh, and he's just ordered a new Pearson in fact which looks really really swanky and has got electronic everything and hydraulic discs and is is going to be gorgeous when it arrives but a lot of people have got really scruffy bikes that they they use at work and actually to be honest that probably the best cyclist that we have uh, the, the one well maybe not the best but the one who inspired me and told me to do the dash in the first place um is our studio director you know he, he's got a nice bike but it's kind of it's I think he's had it a while and he's very disciplined at not um upgrading it too much so I've got to be careful because I don't want to insult his bike <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll be he'll be he'll be really upset in fact, one of I'm trying, I'm trying to think what the brand is. One of my friends... I've got a friend who did the dash a few years ago from work who didn't even have her own bike. She just borrowed a friend's bike. And it was, it was a really rubbish sort of... Um, one of those really cheap aluminium brands. And I can't remember what it was now. But she did it, you know, sort of... In, for all the, you know, the toys and the lightness and the, you know, the great technology that we try and get because they're fun she proved that if you're fit you can just do it on pretty much anything and we've had people do that dash on a boris bike on tandems um on a brompton so you can do those rides if you're fit and know what you're doing on pretty much anything
0: wow brompton that would be the boris bike i think would probably be the hardest one yes they are like tractors Good fun, but
2: well, trying to go up some of those hills on a Boris bike—I don't know how he did it. He must have been absolutely super fit.
0: So, um, obviously, you're a Channel Four newsreader, and as cyclists, we sort of me and James grew up with watching uh, Tour de France coverage on Channel Four. Historically, obviously, Gary, people like Gary Imlac. If um, cycling was to ever come back to to Channel Four, would you be keen to put your hand up as um, to get involved with the sort of? presenting side because obviously you've done much more than just read the news you've you've presented sort of documentaries etc but would you ever be tempted to get to sort of dip your toe into something like that and try something new
2: I would really like to do a cycling show that wasn't really just about the sport I can't pretend to to know anything about the sport of cycling, really. I mean, I can get by in terms of news coverage and the Tour de France or the Giro or whatever it might be um, in terms of what's going on in terms of the headlines, but I'm not knowledgeable. And so I think for programmes like that, you really want experts. You want people who know what they're talking about. And it would just be frustrating for people at home to watch somebody like me presenting sports cycling um, on the telly. I would really like to do a show about cycling in in real life you know but for for people's lives you know cycling that is about a show that's really about commuting holidays technology i like all that sort of you know the the, the, the gizmos and early adopting stuff so i do you know i, I try not to get sucked into it because it's expensive and it's a black hole but i do enjoy all of that so that kind of show and
0: a show to make cycling seem normal i i feel because i feel in the uk as you sp- spoke about when you went to il de in france cycling's just accepted. People get on a bike to go and to the grocery store, whereas in the UK, it's it's not the case. If you
1: cycle, it's because you're a... Weirdo. Com- oh Yeah, a weirdo <laughs> or a competitive cyclist. I mean, how, how important do you see the media's portrayal of cycling um, in terms of how, uh, you know, the uptake of cycling in Britain and the media's influence on that? And it's kind of a two-part question. How often do you literally just despair at certain media outlets, <clears throat> Daily Mail, who... Um, Potentially, don't exactly say the most uh, unincendiary things about the situation.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, the portrayal of cyclists as you know always always selfish, always dangerous, and irritating, and self righteous, um, you know, is 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 a bad stereotype. I mean, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> these stereotypes come about because you know that there is some truth somewhere in there. You know, there's always a hint of, you know, there's something on which to base that. But I, I kind of get this. I'm a bit more sort of hopeful, really, actually, that so many people in the media, I think, you know, the, there's a lot of cycling, cyclists in the media now. So I think probably always have been. And so I think media portrayal of cyclists is probably, I hope, less of a problem than it has been in the past. I think the trouble is that you, you're always going to get certain people so you know um and in the current sort of anti-pc anti-woke anti-everything kind of times that we live in it's it's easy to have a pop at cyclists um and there are going to be certain popular populists uh who will do that but then you know there's always surprising things as well like you know you, you you would you know, when Jeremy Clarkson became, you know, revealed that he he actually got on a bike and quite liked cycling around London, it was quite surprising and and quite good. And so I think that whole, you know, anti-cycling thing feels a bit old-fashioned. I don't know, am I, am I out of touch? Do you still feel it's a problem?
0: I, th- I feel like it for a lot of people it has got boring and especially in the last year there's been this sort of, Hey, it's it's accelerated towards acceptance because we had to because we were, we were living in a society where we couldn't get a train or a bus like we once would and we weren't driving as much but I do think you'll always have your stalwarts out there you you know you can nick ferraris on lbcs who ultimately I think a lot of di- time do it to be contrarians they want to just have an argument to have on their radio show because it, it gets listeners in doesn't it um And we've we've both been, I mean, I don't know if you have, James, I've been invited onto Nick Ferrari's show to debate cycle lanes with him previously. And I think it's just because it's quite an easy, you know, for their listenership, it's quite an easy topic for them to get people on board with. But I think in a a large way, as you said, Krishna, I think there has been a sort of a, a wave towards acceptance.
1: I'm going to admit to you, this is going to be quite a tenuous link, but it's just a question that I wanted to ask you in general when I knew you were coming on the show. You are a man of common sense, you are a newsreader, Um, clearly a very erudite, well-educated individual, and you must find yourself not just reading a story out about cycling and where you're kind of tearing your hair up thinking, this is just not helpful, but other stuff um, about, you know, politics in general, particularly. How do you kind of square that away how do you not erupt sometimes or just refuse point blank to want to deliver a certain piece of news because you know it's not going to be helpful to the wider debate and to people which is you know who you're there to serve
2: well your personal opinions are just something you've got to put aside and you get used to that that's the deal and when you enter this job you know you you have to put aside what you think and it's funny because people often these days think they know what you think or what your politics are. And that if you're doing an interview a certain way, it's because what you think, I mean, people kind of lost their ability to be discerning about these things and seem to have forgotten that we're doing a job. And so if I ask a question that you might think is a sort of a stupid question from your point of view, it's not because that's what I think. It's because it's my job to ask questions from every different angle. And so you do just put aside your personal opinion and, you know, and and concentrate on trying to do a public service. In terms of reporting news that you don't think is helpful, I feel like that's a different thing. I mean, I I would not report in a way that I think is deliberately unhelpful or misleading or you know just sort of shit stirring, um, because that's not my job. I mean, you know, we're trying to do the best we possibly can in terms of telling people important stuff that they need to know and want to debate to be honest when you're when you're doing the news you've got quite a lot to think about so whether it's technical or practical or what you're going to ask or what's coming up next or what's the best way to approach this next interview so your personal opinion of what's going on it just doesn't come to the fore in my case and it may just be training. It may just be, you know, if you've been doing it for 30 years, then that's the way you do it. And and that's the, that was the deal when you entered, you know, this trade. Um, and maybe that's changing because I think, you know, more media is now more openly opinionated. And there used to be a very clear division, basically. If you were a broadcast journalist, you had to buy into impartiality and fairness and... Um, you know, giving all sides a fair hearing. Um and if you were a print journalist, then you could you could take sides and you could favour the opinions of your editor or your proprietor. Those lines have all blurred now because everybody's doing everything and everybody's doing video and audio and podcasts and um you know all, all that kind of thing. So it's very hard to tell the difference just visually between a piece of content by the BBC or Channel 4 and a piece of content by, you know, somebody else who who wants to be openly biased.
0: In a similar vein, how... Something that, you know, James and I have been in situations where we've had to interview professional cyclists and one of the topics of discussion quite commonly is doping. And it's a a topic that nine times out of ten a cyclist will not want to talk to you about. Um, But you know you have to bring it up. And you've probably been in very similar circumstances where you've had interview guests where everyone in the room knows that that question there'll there'll be a particular question needing to be asked and the interviewee probably doesn't want to ask it do you ever get very have you ever got quite nervous about having to sort of pose a particular question to a guest before has there been a time where you've almost stopped yourself because you know that it's going to make the interview so tense obviously now you're so with your experience it's kind of sort of comes with practice but was there ever a time where you're like I, I don't know if I can ask this question because I don't know how it's going to go
2: I mean that, my job is asking the unpopular question you know and the question that people don't want to be asked and so you just have to get over the idea of uh, interviewees liking you you know that there, there are some people on the news who want to be liked and want to be loved and if that's If that's your aim, then you're just not going to be able to do your job very well. And so you have to accept that um, a lot of interviewees are going to be very wary of you. They're not going to particularly like you. They may not like you at the end of the interview. Um, You've just kind of got to hope that they think you're being fair and that, you know, you're asking a question that's legitimate. And it's very rare that people actually think what you've asked is illegitimate. You know, even if they don't want to answer that question, they don't really want to talk about that thing you know, they know that it is entirely reasonable for you to raise it. And if you're, you know, and to challenge them. And most people don't agree to do interviews without realising that, you know, very very occasionally people will get angry or walk out or, you know, and I've had a couple of famous examples of that. But um, I I think mostly people understand that if you put yourself up for interview, you're going to be asked questions. And... The difficulty is, you know, when you really like somebody, I suppose, and you don't want to upset them and you don't want to, you know, you'd quite like to get on with them afterwards and all the rest of it, but you know that you've got to ask the hard question um, and, and that they're not going to like it. And you feel a little bit apologetic sometimes. But you can't ever say that and you can't ever reveal that because, you know, you will instantly change the tone, I think, of, of the interview and make it easier for them to... Evaders
0: and and a shared experience i think we've both i mean in both our industries again yours is much more sort of important is that i feel now is you can be frozen out quite easily and i think channel four experienced this last last year where there was certain points where you weren't being granted interviews with certain members of i believe cabinet yeah um, and we've had we've had the same in that we once published an article on on lance armstrong took umbrage to it and therefore we were never allowed to talk to him and we've had it with there are certain people in the in the world of cycling as we speak who we've written about or we've, we've sort of done content on and then we've kind of been frozen out by their representatives or their teams and it puts you in a, an awkward position because you see others around you who are, realize that so therefore maybe don't ask the questions that you would you think should be asked
2: yeah, and I, I think it is. It's I think it's a it's a genuine dilemma. I think for topics like yours, um, where you know you can say for, for me it's easy. You know, if I'm talking about politics or COVID or wars or you know anything really really serious, no one's going to question really the legitimacy of asking tough questions on that. It's when you stray into the arts, film. Um, You know, should I really have been asking a serious question of Quentin Tarantino? Um, You know, is it fair um, to try and hold them to account he's not a politician? I I think that's what, you know, it it does get trickier as you get into those areas. And, you know, cycling may be one of those where you think, well, they're sports people, you know, they're not trying to run the country. Um, To what extent do you need to haul them over the coals and hold them to account? On the other hand, you say, well, hang on, you know, this is a... This is a big industry. They become national figures, national heroes. They're held up, um, you know, as great examples and they have to abide by standards and follow the law and follow the laws of the sport. And if they don't, well, they should be held to account for it. So, but, you know, I I think it is really hard. Um, And I do, you know, I do a lot of those sort of cultural interviews as well. You can't treat them the way you would treat a cabinet minister because... They are fundamentally different, but equally, you kind of want to ask the question about their own personal standards and personal behaviour, um, and it's a difficult balance to strike because you will be, you know, you, you will be shut out or, or, or you know, hit back at to differing degrees.
1: Yeah, I mean, so because that's 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 another element of it, which is the you know you have to ask those questions, and they will be very evasive often with an answer. And I saw you the other the other uh, night on Channel Four um, interviewing Tobias Elwood. and I can't remember what you asked him. It's something basically it's something to do around you. Are you guys backing Matt Hancock or not? Just give me an answer. What do you think? And he just wouldn't do it. And you had that kind of answer the question minister moment. And in that moment, are you? Because I would sort of from my armchair think you're getting a little bit frustrated but are you kind of overegging the frustration in order to pile the pressure on or is there just part of you' that's just like flipping it, mate come on <laughs> just give us an answer
2: yeah there, there are there are times when it is just flipping it answer the question you know don't don't try and reframe the debate it's become so common for people now to just try and reframe your question and answer what they want to ask um, sorry I, and answer what they want to answer rather than answer your question, that there are different ways of tackling it. Sometimes you just have to point out what they're doing and say, well, you know, we can all see what you're doing. You're not answering the question. You're answering your question. I'd rather it if you answered my question. Um, And sometimes you do get a bit annoyed. I mean, I think if they are, you know, especially if they're in a political position and they are just point blank ignoring your question. You know, it, it is a bit annoying sometimes. And the, the 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 most important thing to do is to point out to the viewer what's going on, and to point out to them that you've noticed what they're doing, and that if they think they're going to get away with this without anybody realising or pointing it out, then then they're not. Because ultimately, you can't force people to answer the question. You can't force people to address what you're saying. And if they are coming on and just want to plough their own line and say what they've come on to say. You can't stop them, but you can point out what they're doing and say, I noticed that you're not answering my question, and so, right, let's move on to the next topic. Um, And, yeah, I mean, there have been times when it it just, it does get, you know, it's annoying for viewers at home, and you feel it too, because you feel it's your job to try and get those answers.
1: Mm. Do you ever does it ever because so I'm projecting now. This keeps me up at night that we've entered a world of of the Orwellian double think and double speak where you can just say anything. There is no truth, and somehow that flies. And even though people question it, the questions somehow don't get answered. Does that worry you from a you know an unbiased position as as a newscaster and what are we going to kind of do about it? Is there hope? Do we have to move away from newspapers and TV and get onto social media for for truth? or so is actually the social media side of things what's killing the truth because it's creating its own facts purely through voices and momentum?
2: Yeah, I, I think social media is not where you go for truth. Um, and so, no, I don't think that's the answer at all. And uh, Social media has been disastrous on this. You know, for so many different reasons, and that people can just say things that are completely untrue, unchallengeable, um, because there is no interaction. It's a big question that, and it's kind of it's it's partly to do with the communication strategies of people in power, Um, and you know, those in power have become much cleverer at avoiding proper scrutiny. So, if you think about the press conferences that we've all been sitting through during COVID which look like a big exercise in transparency, but in truth aren't, because they're on Zoom for a start. So the journalist only gets to speak when the microphone is turned on, which they control. And you don't get any return nine times out of 10. It's up to the minister or whoever's holding the press conference, whether they come back to you and say, oh, do you want to come back on that? Or do they just move on to the next person? And nine times out of 10, they will just move on. So there's no real ability to say, well that's interesting, but you didn't really answer my question on whatever it was. Could you just address that? You don't get that return. So so there's no, you know, proper scrutiny is really, really hard. And it's only really possible if people do long interviews. You know, even the short interview is very, very difficult because in three minutes or whatever a news interview might normally be, you've got time for the statement, a challenge, maybe another challenge, another statement and then time's up so it's only if you've got a reasonable amount of time to actually drill in something that you can really try and hold people to account which is one of the reasons i really like doing the you know the podcast which i do um which is not really about holding people to account but it's having long conversations in which you can actually explore things people just saying things that are blatantly untrue <laughs> is a a really difficult problem now because the opportunities to hold them to account and challenge them off you know off are not there often and particularly in a world of social media things that are blatantly untrue can just be amplified and repeated by armies of people and you don't even know whether those armies of people are real they might be social media factories so yeah i mean you know tr- truth is a hard thing to to come by now and it's, it's, it's quite precious and you've got to work out where it is. I mean, I find, find this with my kids, trying to educate them about what is trusted media and where they can seek the truth. It's quite hard. You know, When when I was growing up, and I imagine even when you were growing up, it was relatively easy to work out what were trusted media outlets. These days, there is so much out there and quite a lot of new ones. It's very hard. So you'll find yourself having conversations with teenagers where they go, oh, did you hear about such and such? You know, um, did you hear about Anonymous? You know, he's trying to bring down the government. And you go, <laughs> no, that's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, did, you, did you watch Channel 4 News tonight where we had an actual whistleblower from the government leaking government documents? And that was really important. And that was real. And sort of trying to, trying to explain to them the difference between trusted and, un, you know, and untrustworthy media is quite hard
0: yeah and 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 as you said, even in our sphere cycling, which is so small and insignificant we we come up against these problems every single day. I've always said that one of the hardest things is people are too media trained these days, so you don't actually get any interesting answers because they've been trained within an inch of their life to be able to just regurgitate what you know the guy who's always standing over your shoulder as well. Normally, in our case, has told them to say, "Yeah." So, one of the big problems in cycling, uh, over the last, well, since the Lance Armstrong days, is that the the control that a press person has, basically, on the pro cyclist. And nine times out of ten, if you grant an interview, that press person will be present, um, and they'll be sort of stepping in Um, and access as well. Access to sports people is. It's f- fewer and far between and it's getting worse, which is which is annoying, actually, because if you look back 15, 20 years, you can have quite interesting stories and go quite in-depth with people and you would actually learn more about them. But now it's it's very guarded and uh, it's very much cherry-picked who they talk to and what they talk about, which is uh, a, a big difficulty.
2: Yeah. I think that's true in all, in all walks, really. But uh, And what we've done more and more is just be very transparent about what's going on so when press officers make that terrible mistake and i don't know why they do it it's the worst thing you can possibly do as a press officer is to intervene in an interview and and try and correct something or say right time's up we're not doing that or we're not talking about that it's the worst possible thing you can do because we will now generally run it and uh, there's been an expectation in the past that Press managers could intervene, and and there would be an, you know there 's an unwritten code between us all where you know we, we they can manage these things you 've got to make it unmanageable for them, and so that they must know that if they ever try and intervene in an interview you'll you 'll record it and you 'll show it and or you 'll write it up and you 'll say this is what happened and you know if they want to be part of the conversation then they 're going to be on the record and the and the trouble is you know when you do that when you challenge them you know, as you were saying before, you do risk them not bringing people to you again.
1: Who do you think's been your, your most unmanageable or what's been your most unmanageable situation? Not unmanageable from your point of view, as in you can manage yourself, but you've been in a room and you just felt that the, the interviewee and the rest of the people there represented them, just like, wow, this is going in the wrong direction. Barring, of course, Tarantino, which we mentioned earlier.
2: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's very rarely the interviewees who are unmanageable. You know, even very wary government ministers are kind of generally find they expect to be questioned and they've, they're more than capable usually of handling it. Um, it is the, it's the press and PR people who often misjudge things and are trying to protect people when it's just inappropriate. You know, the number of times you now go into an interview and some PR person goes you've got three questions and you just go, oh, just go away, you know, just um, shut up. This is is The most stupid thing to do in the world is to put the backup of the interviewer before they've even begun. You know, why are you trying to annoy me before I've even asked my first question? You know, or they'll try and say, so this is just about X, isn't it? We're not going to talk about Y, you know, or what are you going to ask? That's the most stupid question a PR can ever ask you. You know, what are you going to ask them? as if I'm going to tell you in advance. So all all of those sorts of things that make make them unmanageable, and they're unfortunately really common. I was just in America actually recently doing some stories around these terrible police shootings. And we went to one small town and the mayor was trying to manage the situation. And he didn't have any PR help or anything like that normally. And he was a young guy, but he was very open. And, you know, we just sort of, I just, grabbed him as he was walking past and said can we do an interview you know we're going to be here for five minutes we're from london blah, blah blah and he was like yeah fine come over but he'd hired in this pr company to manage his pr while he was in the middle of this crisis and this this pr person literally came out and said um you know so you have you have three minutes um you can ask five questions um and you know what are they going to be on and i sort of you just thought you are the worst PR person I've ever met because you're, um, your job is to make the media feel like you're open and helpful and not not just annoy us before we've even asked the first question. And she kept trying to intervene and I just sort of ignored it and just ploughed on and he was fine. So it's very rarely the interviewees themselves who have any kind of problem. And quite often I, I find people are quite surprised that you haven't got to them. You know, if you've, if you've been trying to get someone for ages and their people have kept saying no, um, and you see them and you say, it's been an absolute nightmare trying to get hold of you, and and they're often quite surprised. I mean, there, there might be some disingenuousness with politicians on that, but the level of control these days is extraordinary. And, you know, it's it's often controlled from the centre and people who are more than happy and more than capable of talking to the media, are just prevented from talking to the media for all sorts of different reasons.
0: On a similar vein, my first ever Tour de France, we were we attended uh, what were then Team Sky's press
1: conference.
0: And we sat down and it was one of those sort of big, there's 30, 40 media in the room, broadcast and written journalists. And they said, there'll be four questions from broadcast and then we'll open to the floor, which was sort of, there was, you know, all the broadsheets were there, we were there and foreign media as well. So the the broadcasters asked their questions, find two written journalists, and then the next hand that went up was David Walsh from The Times, who famously was the man who sort of busted the Lance Armstrong case, and he asked a question about doping straight to Dave Browsford. The question was avoided, and then out of nowhere, the the press conference shut down, and, and everyone got led out, and, you know... That as well, if anything, stokes some of the beliefs of some of the people, some of the journalists in the room who may have already had a certain opinion of who you were interviewing and of, of Team Sky, or Dave Browsford, rightly or wrongly. That only helps to sort of add fuel to the fire there, that there was one difficult question from David Walsh, he's a, quite a notorious journalist in our, in our industry, and then there was, after that, no more questions, it was... It was quite odd. You make it a much bigger story. Yeah, exactly.
2: I had exactly the same thing yesterday um, with a story on the news involving Prince William and Gordon Brown, who had a meeting in Edinburgh, um, which we revealed on the programme. And we happened to have a crew outside Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh when they arrived. And they filmed from the pavement, but were told that um, that was Crown property and for privacy law reasons we shouldn't use that material because Gordon Brown who was being photographed by our camera was inside the palace compound even though you could just see it you know a member of the public could just see it from where you were standing normally outside the palace that kind of thing I find really surprising because you kind of think you're making this a bigger story than it is The minute you say you can't show something or you can't do something or you can't ask something or you shut down a press conference, you're making a big fuss over something that if you just answered the question and moved on, would be much less fuss. I've had that often.
0: And we're journalists, so we, it's going to make us want to ask the question even more. So
2: I, d- I did quite a famous interview with Jeremy Corbyn once in 2015 when he was first standing for the Labour leadership, and it, it caused a lot of controversy, and some people hated it, and some people loved it. And uh, it was because I was asking him about his statement about, um, you know, whether Hamas and Hezbollah were his friends. And it took quite a long time of sort of backwards and forwards to get to the final answer. And I remember after the interview, I just said, you know, if you'd have just said that at the first, we'd have moved on. We wouldn't have spent five minutes arguing over it. Um, and so you kind of think the same thing, you know, sort of just, just answer the question. It's very interesting listening to Dominic Cummings this week. And you might, you know, you can ask, ask yourself questions about, is he telling the truth now? Was he telling the truth then? Will the real Dominic Cummings stand up? But what he seemed to have concluded after this last year and a half was that it's better to tell the truth, it's better to be transparent. Even though he was the person in Downing Street who was absolutely shutting down transparency and controlling the message. He's now saying, actually what I've learned is it's better to be honest and open and transparent with the British public. I really hope that's, tr- that's really what he has learned Because I've always said this to anybody who has ever asked me publicly or privately for, my, you know, for advice on how to handle questioning in the press just answer the question you know if you're not a crook you've got nothing to fear from answering the question um and you know even if it's difficult even if it's controversial if you tell people sincerely what's going on you know if you're a bike team who've had a problem in the past but are now tackling it if you're honest about that if you're sincere about that who's going to attack you for it you know all you can do is is do your best and people are actually i think really you know, people want to be fair. They want to give people, you know, the benefit of the doubt on the whole. And so when there have been scandals, if you, if you front it up and say, yeah, we made a mistake or we had a problem or, um, you know, we're trying to tackle it. It's very, even if you don't have the answer, even if the answer is, we don't honestly know how to solve this problem, but we're thinking about it and we're trying our best and we're talking to people, that's got to be better than getting angry and shutting down a press conference.
1: So, a part of you, though, with the Dominic Cummings story, that thinks that it's just uh, a well-timed vendetta.
2: Well, I think there's certainly some scores being settled. Yeah, I mean, the the evidence was selective in terms of who he talked about. You know, if you think about who he pointed the finger at, it was Matt Hancock, Matt Hancock, Matt Hancock, over and over and over again. You know, he was settling scores with Boris Johnson, with Carrie. You know, he didn't talk about. You know, a lot of other people who were involved a lot of the time, you know, Michael Gove barely got a mention. I thought he was quite involved in the COVID response. There were all sorts of people who didn't really get a mention and he was incredibly generous to Rishi Sunak. Um, And people might say, well, could that be because Rishi Sunak might be a candidate to be the next Prime Minister? So, you know, he's not a fool. (laughs) He will have been careful about what he said. Wasting time denying things that are kind of obvious to everybody.
0: We've, we've come to the end of our time, a lot of time, um, Krishnam.
2: Sorry, we've probably been talking very seriously all this time.
0: Haven't we? I know. We've got two sort of lighthearted questions just to finish with, just to, to bring bring us back around. Um, and the first one, and this was, again, took us a long time to write, was if, if you was to head to Alpe d'Huez, which is a famous climb in France now with Hugh Edwards and Mary Nightingale, and race to the top. Who would win?
2: <laughs> well, I, I suspect Hugh is quite fit at the moment because he's into boxing, and he's um, you know he's got super fit. So I right. would probably put my money on Hugh. But I don't know whether he is um, you know whether he's just boxing fit or whether um, he can propel himself forwards. So I don't know. I mean, depends what bike I'm on as well. You know,
0: if you have the e-bike, and then
2: exactly. If I have the e-bike, <laughs> then I'll definitely win. But um, but yeah, I mean I, <laughs> I I'm always, you know, um very modest about my own abilities. So I would I would have no no doubt that I would be at least second and probably third. <laughs> very
1: diplomatic. <laughs> um and as a kid, what posters were on your bedroom rule? And if you were putting up posters now on your bedroom rule, who would they be of?
2: Ooh um I didn't really have a lot of posters. I had a Starsky and Hutch poster, um, which some people may remember. Yeah, um, as a cop show. Um, and what else? I mean, I didn't really have idols as a thing, and I still don't. I've not, I've not really sort of been in that sort of world. I mean, I've got people I really like and respect. Um, but I, um, I've not, I was, I'm, not, I'm not a sort of a fanboy in that respect and never have been. So, you know, and, and I had, you know, I had like favourite musicians and things like that. I was really into Depeche Mode when I was a teenager and New Order and, you know, you know, certain bands who I then got to interview. Depeche Mode were one of the first bands I ever interviewed when I was 18. And I was a bit sort of starry, you know, and starstruck about that. So they probably would have been on my, my bedroom wall had I, had I been bothered to put up posters. But um I wasn't I wasn't really a postery kind of person. I kind of wanted a nice looking bedroom. We 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 um we actually built a house or had a house built when I when I was a teenager in the garden of our original house. And so we spent a lot of time I spent a lot of time sort of working out and designing my room and it was quite a clever sort of split level room and had a balcony and all sorts of stuff it was it was it was great um so i was more concerned about that than than i was about putting up posters okay no fair, no fair
1: enough but so to uh flesh it out in a slightly different way then what podcasts and what specific book and other than channel 4 news what tv show are you telling your kids to watch listen to and read
2: right um gosh that's hard um Well, for my kids, when it comes to TV, I just desperately wish they would watch something, you know, because kids don't seem to watch TV very much at the moment. They don't watch factual TV. So I would be delighted if they would actually sort of sit down and watch the news or anything serious or documentary. um, And we'll try and point them at stuff from time to time that I think they might find interesting. I really wish they'd watch even things like Natural History. I try and get my kids to watch David Attenborough. And they know who David Attenborough is and they'll have seen clips. But sitting down and watching a whole programme... They, they seem very reluctant about so yeah i mean i kind of i think at the moment sort of anything that is climate change natural history natural world related is the stuff i would sort of drive my kids towards um, and anybody who is not really consuming factual tv anymore you know if the news is a bit much and all you do is watch box sets and films early entry point at least is is some natural history which um, which at least might turn you on to the really serious issues at the moment, the, you know, sort of as a gateway, gateway drug to the news. In terms of other stuff, I mean, to be honest, the the books I read these days are... I, I, reading has been slightly spoiled by my job in that I, I get through a lot of books, but I, they're usually for people I'm about to interview. So I don't really read for pleasure anymore. The only time I read for pleasure is on holiday and I might sort of just pick up a couple of novels um, in a week and they're usually things that my wife will, you know, will have read because she's a big reader and and I'll just kind of like, she'll say, read this, you'll enjoy it. Um, I'm surrounded by sort of these sorts of books, um, Ed Miliband's How to Fix Our World books. I'm interviewing him next week. It's like this big, huge thing that I've got to get through by Monday. (laughs) Um, And... And I've got, and then next week I've got Gordon Brown and I've got to read his book. Um and so all of that so I've very bad you know and and often they're really really good but they are are they books I would sort of push people towards I don't know. I think I with my kids I just try and get them to read anything that they will enjoy whether it's trashy novels or classics or um factual books then I'll 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 push them towards that, um, whatever they're into at the moment. I'd probably buy my son a book about gaming at the moment because that's all he's really into and maybe think, well, maybe this will get him to read. And podcasts, to be honest, the, the podcasts I listen to are the uh, the chassis ones. So, I mean, and surprisingly so, I mean, it's going to sound really wet, this, but I really like Fee Glover and Jane Garvey's podcast, you know, fortunately, because um, it's just kind of listening to, to a chat. And... And because so many podcasts are quite serious, I mean, I'll I'll listen to the odd news podcast, I'll listen to the odd daily or Pod Save America or those sorts of things, just again for work to just kind of bring me up to date with what people are saying. But it doesn't really feel like it's for pleasure. If I go for a walk, then I would much rather, with with my AirPods in, I'd much rather listen to Fee Glover and Jane Garvey prattling on about nothing. So I'm probably not that typical as a, as a, as a podcast listener, and and also I, I I I still I'm I would still rather listen to music for pleasure than chat. I'm afraid doing my job makes me such an atypical consumer. I'm, <laughs> I'm very bad because I when, when I when I consume the media I basically want to escape everything that I do. So. So nowadays, I barely watch factual TV. I basically watch box sets and Netflix and movies. And when I'm listening to stuff, I'm listening to music. Um, and it's a delight to escape the news and podcasts and serious things and proper interviews because that's what I spend my professional life doing.
0: A very similar vein to you. I I'll go through waves of not being able to stand cycling, watching it on TV. For, there'll be a couple, of, a couple of weeks at a time, rather. The last thing I want to do is watch cycling or think about a bike so i do very much get where you're coming from there
2: is it it okay to listen to things while you're cycling i'm not quite clear on this is it very bad to have earplugs in
1: um it's uh i don't know if you're asking if you're asking me personally and i probably shouldn't say this then it's absolutely fine uh of course one should always be able to hear the ambient noise one earphone only not too loud preferably a podcast something that's not too engaging. Uh, equally, I'm sure the official party line is absolutely not. And I'll probably be all <laughs> over the coals for saying this. Um, but I do, I mean, as much as I love cycling, I love it as, uh, as a time to also do something else, which is a kind of weird thing to say. But it's the only sport where you can sit down on a saddle, eat and listen to an album at the same time which I kind of like. So, uh, yeah, don't, uh, yeah. Don't, don't take... Everyone needs to make their own minds up, I think. That's, that's, that's my official party line.
0: The, the important fact is it's, it is
1: legal. It is legal to listen to music. So that's the, the takeaway there. That's true. And if you, can listen, if you can listen to it in your car and you can fiddle with the radio and you can have your windows up and you can have it so loud you can't hear anyone else screaming as you make a left turn across a bike lane, then it's fine for everyone else.
2: I would never listen to anything while I'm commuting. But on a long bike ride on a country lane, mm. I think that's fine.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's in a, you know it's been proven to increase performance. They they banned they banned the use of uh, earphones in um, British cycling power tests because it was skewing the results. And cyclists don't typically have um, music when they're riding in a pro peloton.
2: Oh right, I didn't know yeah. that. That's really and interesting. they'll play it
1: through car radios because they have their radio link. So sometimes they'll be like, turn it up, turn it up lads, and then they'll pipe it through into their ears when they're cruising around the, those. Uh, those northern poppy fields of france
0: <laughs> um so christian before we go just a quick recall so duchenne dash around the world of goodwood it's on saturday the 3rd of july i believe um still chance to to sign up as you said
2: yeah there's a website where you can sign up i mean if you just if you just google duchenne dash around the world it will pop up and you can go onto the website it's very easy and there's still lots of places and um it will be really good fun
0: there we go, dear listeners, Krishnan Guru Murphy of Channel 4 News fame, and also a pretty handy cyclist, because anyone who can ride 300 kilometres in one go from London to Paris in 24 hours knows what they're doing. I've not ridden 300 kilometres in one go, admittedly. James, I think you have, but you'll agree that it's, a, it's quite a task to undertake.
1: It's a t- tough old undertaking, as is uh, cycling around the world, some 40,000 kilometres divided by... 12. I don't know what that makes, but it rather sounds like uh, Mr. Gary Murphy might be trying to knock on the door of 400 kilometers as his contribution around Goodwood um, in around about 12 hours, which is impossible, I believe.
0: <laughs> Unless you're a professional cyclist, yeah. But no, it was good to have him on, slightly different uh, than our usual guest, as he wasn't like a pro cyclist or within the bike industry. But nonetheless, it was really interesting to get his opinion on certain things around cycling and have. What is ultimately an am- an amateur's opinion on on sport, which we all are. We are amateurs. We don't. We have a different way of looking at bikes and the world of cycling. Uh, both of us have also, you know, we let's not let's not uh, keep secrets, James. Both of us, in the name of cyclists, have stepped off the bike during events. No, I haven't. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> Definitely, uh, you're telling me every big ride you've done from the mag, you've done the entire. Tire hog. Of course, I have. Okay. Well, I'll be I'll be open and honest with our audience, like Krishnan said we should be. Issue one hundred and seven. We did. Uh, I did a big ride at Le Trois Col. It was three passes in the French Alps: the Col de, de alou the Col de Caillol, and the Col de Champ. It was thirty-eight degrees at two thousand meters of elevation. So it was about forty-two in the valley. um And if I'd have done the entire ride, I think I could have passed out.
1: So, yeah. That's very true. I mean, pride comes before a fall. But uh, aside from time being against us, I've completed all completed all rides, haven't stepped off the bike yet. I've stepped off the bike at the end of something and been sick, as you know. And I really did think that I was very close to my um, actual physical limits when we went riding around in Kent, which was quite a strange situation, really, to be feeling like I might die in, you know the garden of England on a warm summer's day. You're in my house now. That's
0: how I felt like that, that entire day. <laughs> exactly.
1: You're in my house now, but also weirdly it was my home from home. But um but anyway, no, uh, I, I sound incredibly conceited. Cycling is well are in it and it's nice to share in that, I think. And also yeah, it's just nice to hear somebody else's perspective on it. And I'll tell you what, it's nice to talk to a proper journalist, because we alluded to it quite a few times in that interview. Let's be honest. We love riding, we love cycling most of the time we love the pro sport, et cetera, et cetera. Do we consider ourselves real journalists? I certainly don't. If, you into, if you're at a party, right, someone comes up to you, you haven't met them before, and they say, Joe, or some, they, they don't know your name they haven't met you. How do they know your name? Unless they're clairvoyant. So the person you're with says, I'd like to meet Joe. And they go, oh, hello, Joe. They put their hand out. You shake it. It's not COVID anymore. What do you do for a living? What do you say?
0: Uh, I normally go, oh, I'm a sports writer. Um, because a lot of times it happens in like hairdressers or in cabs or as I recently had it on my first driving lesson and usually I want to avoid eight to ten minutes of being told why I need to get road tax, which is ultimately what I get and it bores me to tears and I reckon Christian probably gets it when he meets people and he probably gets asked loads of questions about politicians and about politics etc. Kind of what we did, exactly what we did, and I find that a lot of the time, if I meet someone new and I go, oh, "I'm a cycling journalist," they're like, "Oh bloody cyclists! Don't you think you should have road But, but honestly, mate, honestly, mate, it's for it's it's atrocious that you boys ride to abreast. I mean, because I'm on the road and it's dangerous. I've even, I've even. This sounds bad, I've even told them I do something else. Like what? Just like. I work in retail because I know that they won't ask me questions about <laughs> working in John Lewis. Mate, if I, I found I, out... I can't be bothered. I, I honestly can't. This... I have no energy to debate constantly with people. I don't know. I
1: feel like I've touched a nerve. This is the sort of time where your press officer, aka your girlfriend Jade, walks into the room and goes, look, 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 we're shutting this down. We're shutting this down. That's what I did actually want to ask Christian to say just at the end of the interview. And maybe we'll just throw it in now for context. I wanted him to say... I'm shutting your ass down. Actually, no, I'm shutting your butt down. (laughs) That's what Tarantino said to him. And yeah, you know, just to point that out, actually, uh, if you've listened this far and you're listening to us now, fantastic. It was a long, old interview. We did talk about the Quentin Tarantino interview, the infamous one, which centred around Tarantino's Django Unchained. So that probably would have been... I'll pop a link to it in the description. Pop a link to it. Pop a link to the entire film, which is probably up in pieces on YouTube. Uh, But yeah, Django Unchained, whenever that came out, I'm going to shoot for 20, mm, 2012, 2014, and uh, Krishnan had said, do you see a link between on-screen violence and the portrayal of on-screen violence and real-world violence? And, yeah, again, there'd probably been some kind of shooting in the States. And Tarantino was just like, no, no, I've been asked that question before. No, no, I'm not going to, I don't, I, I'm already on the record, Christian. I'm already on the record. And I'm shutting your butt down. I'm shutting your butt down. And then he got very upset. <laughs>
0: That's a very good Tarantino impression, by the way.
1: I oh, thank you. Literally, that's the first time I've ever tried to do it. Mm, I'm sound not like saying... No, though. no, honestly. I, I, I could do... i do, I do you Herzog. i do you Werner Herzog, which I do practice, but I've never tried to do a Tarantino. Okay, okay, okay.
0: But no, um, yeah, it was... I, I, I guess you get the same though, James. Like, do you tell people that you're a cycling journalist to people that you know? I don't mind doing it if I know that they're into bikes, because then I like to show off with my knowledge.
1: <laughs> with but, the knowledge do you raise your eyebrows when you say the word knowledge like you did just knowledge <laughs> knowledge yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah, and
1: yeah, yeah. but I don't uh, do I, I, I don't say?
0: want I don't want to have that conversation
1: no I mean most of the time and again touched upon it touched upon it back there in our interview um, people are getting better I've had fewer of those conversations I do know what you mean I can I, can, I know when they're I know who's going to ask you know who's going to have that conversation so I do um, tailor my responses to that I can tell if it's like my mates, my mates' uh, wife's mum's new partner—he's going to have something, something to say about it. So more often than not, I used to say I was a writer, and then I found that was that sounded terribly grandiose. <laughs>
0: yeah, because immediately they think that you're like a novelist.
1: Yeah, I'm a novelist. I've got an Ovaletti typewriter, and I'm there burning the midnight oil with a stack of fag butts <laughs> in an ashtray.
0: You're actually an opium, you're addicted to opioids yeah. and...
1: Yeah, I'm living in the Bahamas. Yeah. <laughs> so so I kind of uh, shit-canned that one and decided not to go over the right... So then I say, oh, I write for a bike magazine.
0: And then you start a better conversation, which which, which I did in a pub recently, because I don't want to have deep conversations ever, you know, life's, life's deep at the moment as enough as it is, is there was a group of six older gentlemen in the pub And we had a little like sweepstake if we could guess all their names.
1: That's quite fun.
0: That's the sort of stuff I want to be doing. Yeah. Um, This was another wonderfully uncycling related outro to what was largely an uncycling related podcast. But you know what? It was fun to record and we enjoyed it. And I'm sure that you'll enjoy listening to it. Um, even for just the incredible sound quality that we got from Krishnan, it has far trumped anyone who's
1: ever been on our podcast, and including ourselves. It was absolutely beautiful. I, I was partly almost watching, if you see what I mean, everything because yeah. he had a fantastic. You couldn't see it, uh, dear listeners, but he had a fantastic home setup studio. It looked just like a TV studio. He's got obviously got a fantastic delivery, very personable. Uh, just you know, just got lost. Just got lost in the moment. I felt like I was on my knees. I did, you know. What I really like, though, is you could tell that I'm a hard hitting journalist because I really had him on the ropes because there was a lot of dead air when he had to think about some of those, <laughs> some of those hard hitting questions.
0: What books would I suggest my kids read? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> File that under things to ask Tobias Elwood next time he's <laughs> being frustrating around Matt Hancock. We enjoyed it. Um,
0: again. Thanks for listening. Again, thanks, Lindsay, our producer, for putting this together. She'll probably have a nightmare of this one because it is very long. Thank you, Lindsay. But nonetheless, we enjoyed it. Um, if you liked this podcast, make sure that you subscribe on all of the outlets that you listen to your podcasts on, share it with any of your friends cycling on otherwise, and leave a review and comment on Apple or wherever you consume your podcast because we read them all and we stick the nice ones up on our wall i'm getting one of them tattooed Good, um but for now james i'll see you later i'll bid you adieu and we'll chat soon adieu my friend adieu Today's episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HJC Helmets. James, did you know that HJC has 45 years worth of experience in the helmet game and is also currently the biggest motorcycle helmet brand in
1: the world? Joseph Robinson, I knew this. I also know that HJC has used its unrivaled expertise, that's expertise without rival, to create these helmets for MotoGP. It's done so with wind tunnel testing and real-world testing, and it's applied this to bicycles and now makes the fastest helmets in the World Tour. And aren't we just the
0: experts in HJC helmets, James? Can you also name the two World Tour teams currently using those HJC helmets and the names of its road models too? Uh,
1: Yes, I can again. It is uh, EG2R Citron and Isla Startup Nation. They are the teams. The helmets are the Ibex 2.0, the Furion 2.0, and the Beastie Boys helmet of choice, the AdWatt. And how about the starting price for helmets in the UK? Uh, 75 of your English
0: pounds, please. Congratulations, James. Top marks. You have won yourself a HJC helmet of choice and the complete back catalogue of the Beastie Boys. Now, HJC helmets are available in-store at all HJC stockists and online too. For your closest HJC helmet stockist, search on the Stockist Locator available on the Saddleback website, the home for HJC in
1: the UK. Joe, I'd like to add one more thing. It's H, not H.